Hey, everybody, what's up? And welcome to Summarily, a podcast for busy lawyers, where lawyers like you come for practice tips, CLE courses, and commentary about the law. They also listen to Summarily for case law updates. Once a month, we provide updates from the Florida Appellate Courts, the 11th Circuit, and the U.S. Supreme Court when they are open for business. And that is what we have in store for you today, some case law updates. This is your host, Robert Scavone, Jr. I'm an appellate lawyer, and I clerked at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, as well as at the 3rd District Court of Appeal here in Florida. And I am your co-host, Lindsay Lawton. I'm also an appellate lawyer. I served as a law clerk and career staff attorney on the 1st District Court of Appeals in Florida for nearly 10 years, and as a career staff attorney on the Florida Supreme Court for nearly four years. Hello, Lindsay. Hi, Robert. Happy New Year. Thank you. Same to you. How's your 2024 going? It's going good. It's going good. I'm trying to reset a few things. And so far, so good. We're four days in. And I've had three good days and one bad day. So those are pretty good odds. (laughs) Yeah. Batting 750. So uh, I'll take that. How about you? About the same. I think I haven't had any bad days in 2024 yet. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Well, it's always good to see you. I'm glad that you had a, a good new year and we're coming up next month will be two years for the podcast. Congratulations. And thank you. I've, I've only been around for maybe a, a little bit over a year, I guess. <laughs> I got to figure that out. I got to figure that out. But yeah, so it's uh, exciting. There may be some reformatting after February. You and I will talk about that, but let's get started. But before we do, let me pause for the disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an advertisement for legal services. The information provided on this podcast is not intended to be legal advice. You should not rely on what you hear on this podcast as legal advice. If you have a legal issue, please contact a lawyer. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests are solely those of the individuals and do not represent the views or opinions of the firms or organizations with which they are affiliated or the views and opinions of this podcast's advertisers. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Any editing, reproduction, or redistribution of this podcast for commercial use or monetary gain without the expressed written consent of the podcast creators is prohibited. All right, Lindsay, what do you have first? I have DAN versus State, a First District Court of Appeal opinion issued December 6th. In this case, the court issued an order directing the appellant to serve an initial brief or show cause why the appeal should not be dismissed because the initial brief was overdue. The court received no response to this order and no initial brief was filed. About six weeks later, the court issued another similar order and again, no response or initial brief was filed. About three months after that, the court issued an order to show cause why sanctions should not be imposed. The attorney apologized in his response to that order to show cause, but he did not explain why he failed to respond to the previous orders. As a result, the court referred him to the bar. And I actually kind of hate to bring this up case up simply because I don't know all the circumstances that got this attorney into that situation. And my heart always goes out to all the struggling, struggling attorneys out there. But I thought this was worth bringing up just to put anyone who could be the recipient of a similar order in the future on alert. Mm -hmm. An apology will likely be insufficient to an order to show cause why sanctions should not be imposed. You really need to provide an explanation. Yeah. And I agree. I mean, these are always, you know, you don't want to, call people out but you know we're not calling them out we're just giving a little advisory about what may happen if you fail to do what the court asks you to do right and who knows the the proceedings with the bar could 
could uh right yeah i mean it could end up in nothing yeah it could have it could have been end up in no sanction at all so yeah and you know i also want to know like who knows like if if you provide an explanation i don't know how likely that is to convince the court that sanctions aren't warranted but i would definitely try (laughs) yeah make an effort all right i have an 11th circuit opinion it's our only federal opinion for this for this episode and it's really short it's lampan versus Walgreens. And here the 11th Circuit held that the proper causation standard for FMLA and FWA cases is a but-for causation standard, not a motivating factor causation standard. And the holding is based on the similarity between the FMLA language and the FWA language, which is the causation or what the courts have interpreted as the causation language is the because of language, quote unquote, because of. And Title VII has that same because of language. And the Supreme Court recently interpreted that to mean but for causation. So if you're doing employment law stuff, just know that in the 11th Circuit, the standard is but for for FMLA and FWA. Good to know. What do you have? Next, I've got Orozco versus Rodriguez, a 6th DCA opinion that came out December 15th. This case deals with a petition for determination of paternity and who has standing to seek such a determination. So the facts underlying this case are that a child was born in 2013 and Rodriguez signed the birth certificate, mistakenly believing that he was the child's biological father and that the child's mother was not married. Mm. The mother technically was married, even though she was estranged from her husband. Her husband had lived in another state for years, and even he believed that he and the mother were divorced. He had signed what he called divorce papers at the mother's request, but no divorce proceedings had actually Mm. been initiated, so they were still married. Mm -hmm. Several years after the child's birth, Rodriguez petitioned for a determination of paternity, and the mother and her husband opposed the petition. The trial court determined that there were competing presumptions in the case. On one hand, Rodriguez claimed a statutory presumption because he had signed an acknowledgement of paternity when the child was born. On the other hand, there's a common law presumption that when a woman is married and has a child, then the child's father is the husband of the married woman. Yep. In this case, a paternity test revealed that Rodriguez, the man who had signed the birth certificate and signed an acknowledgement of paternity at the child's birth, was not actually the child's father. Even though Rodriguez was not the child's biological father, the trial court still adjudicated him the legal father. The trial court found that it was in the child's best interest for Rodriguez to be determined as the father because he was the only father that the child had ever known. The appellate court reversed. It held that Rodriguez could not claim the statutory presumption because the statute applies only to children born out of wedlock. And and those are the actual terms of the statute. Uh. Um, And this child was born to a married woman. So that as the court said, that statute didn't apply. And without the statutory presumption, the remaining presumption that existed in the case controlled, and that was that the mother's husband was the father. The appellate court recognized uh, several cases holding that a child's biological father has standing to rebut the presumption that the mother's husband is the father, but Rodriguez was not the biological father, so he had no standing to rebut the presumption. The court held that because Rodriguez was not the child's biological father, there is no established pathway for him to make a claim for paternity. Wow. Interesting case. Sad case for yeah. Rodriguez, for sure. Yeah. I think it might signal that there's some room for this legislature to to consider this, this issue and maybe look and see if the statutes cover 
everything they need to cover in this realm. Yeah, that makes sense. Let me pause for a moment to thank the Law Office of Scott N. Richardson, PA, for supporting this podcast. Scott is a former prosecutor who now focuses exclusively on criminal defense, and he is one of the leading criminal defense lawyers in Florida. I have known Scott for several years and litigated against him when I was a prosecutor. All the prosecutors, judges, and defense lawyers that I know regard Scott as a phenomenal lawyer. He is a consummate professional and always zealously advocates for his clients. Scott has been board certified in criminal law for nearly 30 years and has been practicing law for over 40 years. He is a fellow at the American College of Trial Lawyers, an honor bestowed on only 1% of all lawyers in any state. If you need representation, reach out to Scott at 561-471-9600 or find him at scottnrichardsonlaw.com. All right, well, I'm gonna go next with a Florida Supreme Court opinion called Seedler v. Marina Bay Resort Condo Association, Inc. And here the Supreme Court on a matter of first impression held that in civil cases, harmless error analysis applies to a properly preserved erroneous denial of a cause challenge in jury selection. The court rejected Seedler's argument that such an error is per se reversible. The court explained that the per se rule applies in criminal cases because a defendant's rights are implicated, not so in civil cases. The holding in this case overturns precedent in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th districts, all of which had previously held that the erroneous denial of a cause challenge is per se reversible. And this case is also an important reminder that the burden of proving an error is harmless is on the beneficiary of the error. Here, that's Marina Bay. So applying the proper harmless error standard, Seidler was not entitled to a new trial because Marina Bay failed to show that the error did not contribute to the verdict. And the case that the court is relying on there is a, another Supreme Court case called uh, Special v. West Boca. And that's the case that has this language about the the burden being on the beneficiary of the error. Okay, next we have McGothan versus McDonald, a 50 CA opinion that came out December 8th. This case addresses a claim for punitive damages. The trial court granted a motion for leave to amend to assert a claim for punitive damages, and the appellate court reversed for two reasons. First, the plaintiff's proffer was insufficient to establish intentional misconduct or gross negligence as required to support punitive damages. Second, and this is the cautionary tale that prompted me to select this case for the co- for the podcast, the proposed amended complaint improperly set forth the claim for punitive damages as a standalone count. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that this second reason could have been corrected if it were the only problem, but you, dear listeners, might want to be aware that it's improper to plead a claim of punitive damages as a standalone count. You know, it's funny. I, I think I saw another case from, I don't know if it was the third or fourth that came out recently that had the same issue. I can't remember what it was, but if I, I can opinion, find it, yeah, yeah if I can find it, I'll pop it in the show notes for folks to look at. Okay. Yeah. I think they had a pretty long string site on that um, too, in this opinion. Ah, so maybe okay. a lot of people know it, but in case that point has escaped you and you're preparing a complaint, <laughs> it's good to know. Yeah. All right. Next is Ramos v. Steak and Shake. And this is a second DCA opinion. Uh, Ramos filed a charge with the EEOC alleging His hours were reduced after he suffered a back injury in a car accident that was not related to work. 
He included a factual description in his allegations, but he neither referred to the FCRA, nor did he allege that the company violated the FCRA. And the EEOC dismissed the charge, explaining that it was unable to conclude that the allegations established a violation of the applicable statutes. Ramos filed a complaint in circuit court alleging discrimination and retaliation under the FCRA. The company moved for summary judgment, arguing it was undisputed that Ramos did not allege an FCRA violation in his charge to the EEOC. According to the company, Ramos's error meant he failed to exhaust his administrative remedies before filing suit. The trial court agreed and granted the company's motion for summary judgment. The second DCA reversed. It concluded that the text of Section 760.11 sub 1 is clear. An EEOC charged must contain a short and plain statement of the facts describing the violation and the relief sought. It does not require an employee to cite a particular statute. All Ramos had to do was check the boxes for discrimination and retaliation and explain the facts. And that's exactly what he did in this case. The trial court's determination that Ramos's failure to exhaust administrator's remedies was error. And the second DCA also certified conflict with another 2003 case from the fourth DCA called Bellany versus Broward Hospital District. Let me pause for a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. Early in my career, I battled depression. I wasn't happy at my job and the discontent began affecting my marriage. I tried to work through it on my own, but could not shake the feelings of inadequacy and the thought that my life wasn't meaningful. Thankfully, I found help. Mental health counseling changed my life and BetterHelp can give you the tools you need to approach your life in a very different way. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and more accessible. All you have to do is answer a few questions and BetterHelp's online platform will pair you with a professional therapist in as little as a few days. And if your therapist isn't the right person for you, you can easily switch to a new therapist at no additional cost. To sign up and support this podcast, go to betterhelp.com backslash summarily and get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. That's betterhelp.com backslash summarily. Check the show notes for the link. If you're struggling like I did and like so many of us do, consider online therapy with BetterHelp and start working on your mental health today. All right, Lindsay, you are next. Okay, next we have Florida BC Holdings LLC versus Reese, a 6DCA opinion that came out December 21st. The 6DCA in this case certified conflict with the first district's decision in Reed versus Daly and certified two questions of great public importance. Both the conflict and the certified questions relate to the impact rule. Listeners may remember from law school that the impact rule is a common law doctrine that a person cannot recover damages for emotional distress unless the person has suffered a physical injury in addition to the emotional distress. Robert is nodding along. He remembers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Of course, there are exceptions to the impact rule and the opinion of the 6DCA goes through those exceptions. More importantly, though, the opinion holds that the impact rule applies only to negligence actions and not to intentional torts. The opinion notes that the second district has reached the same conclusion, but the first DCA has reached the opposite holding and did so in Reed. And the sixth DCA in this case has asked the Florida Supreme Court to resolve the question. Another question the opinion poses to the Florida Supreme Court 
is an alternative that assumes the impact rule does apply to intentional torts. And it asks whether the impact rule applies specifically to tortious interference with a business relationship. And if so, whether it still applies even when that, when that tort is committed with actual malice. So yes, I'm nodding along because my torts professor, Judge Weatherington, I hope he's still with us. He was a great torts professor obviously taught us all that. And then the thing that's weird about this is this is like one of those issues that you think would have been decided yeah. by the Florida Supreme Court. It like tort law, the impact Absolutely. rule. It's just so bizarre that there's actually a split here. But yeah. I mean, and this also, I don't know. I mean, you were, you worked at the court. It, does this strike you as the kind of conflict that the court will take? Yes. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. The opinion is really interesting and well done. It's actually quite long, but it's not hard to read, which is always impressive when an opinion is long. Yeah, <laughs> and absolutely. It, um, it goes through a lot of the history and the reason that they found this to be a significant issue. They went through a lot of Florida Supreme Court decisions and pointed out that a lot of the generally when the court's talking about the impact rule, it also is referencing its application to negligence actions. Mm-hmm. And the court has never said expressly that it applies to intentional torts. I do believe there was a dissent. I didn't actually have time to get to that part. So the dissenting judge may think the Florida Supreme Court's precedent on this was more clear, but. Okay, interesting. That's a fun one. Yeah. All right, and we're gonna finish up with just a few rule amendment updates. So on December 21st of 2023, of course, the court amended appellate rules 9.020 and 9.0. Four zero zero, and that was effective one one twenty four at twelve o two a.m. twelve o two a.m. What yeah, is that about? That. I'm just about to ask. Do you what know is why that about? I don't know. I would think twelve o one would be good. I, <laughs> it's so weird. I, I sent I sent the I sent this to my colleagues and at the firm, and I got a response back. I think twelve o two is a typo, and I was like, no, that's it says twelve o two. It's just weird. But in any yeah, event, that was my next guess. I was about to say it's probably a typo. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. In any event, this is uh, in ray amendments to the Florida Rules of Appellate Procedure nine point zero two and nine point four zero zero. Nine point four zero zero is amended to create a new subsection B four, not before, but B four. Except for motions filed under Rule 9.410B, a motion for attorney's fees in proceedings in which the court renders an order of dismissal before the otherwise applicable deadline for filing a motion for attorney's fees has expired must be filed no later than seven days after rendition of the order of dismissal. So even after the dismissal happens, you can still file a motion for attorney's fees. The rule amendment enables parties to timely move for fees even following an appeal dismissal. Rule 9.020H1 is amended to add motions to vacate orders issued by a general magistrate under family law rule 12.490 to the list of motions that toll rendition. Rule 9. 020H1I, rendition of appellate orders, is amended to apply to opinions and orders. So, quote, if any timely and authorized motion under Rule 9.330 or 9.331 is filed, 
the order or opinion will not be deemed rendered as to any party unless all of the motions are either withdrawn or resolved by the rendition of an order or opinion on the motion. So that's the first rule amendment set. And then lastly, NRA amendment to Florida Rule of Appellate Procedure 9.130. On December 14th, the court amended this rule to add to the list of non-final appealable orders an order denying a motion to dismiss on the basis of the qualifications of the corroborating expert in medical malpractice cases. And I know that the Appellate Rules Committee is also considering an amendment to add another item to appealable non-final orders, and that is going to be the denial of stand your ground motions. My favorite. Was that your suggestion? <laughs> no, actually, it uh, it was it was percolating before I got on to the committee. I think there's actually something going on in the Criminal Procedure Rules Committee involving the timeliness of filing a stand your ground motion because currently the rule doesn't have any language about that. And defendants are sometimes waiting 18 months, two years, and sometimes on the eve of trial will file a motion to stand your ground and it's kind of mucking up the works. So they're looking potentially, I guess, to put a time limit on when you would have to do that. So Lindsay, that is a wrap. That is good information, Robert. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening, obviously. We hope you subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends and colleagues. You can rate it on your podcast platforms. I want to thank my friend Chris Clark of Pendulum Productions, LLC, for editing and producing this podcast. You can find him and his work at vimeo.com backslash Pendulum Productions, LLC. And remember, folks, case law is... Two words. One word. One word. One word.